Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, episode 184, The Death of a Principality and Birth of a Kingdom. Now, I've been away, so it's been quite a while between the last episode and now, so we got a lot of news. And that starts with, of course, thanking our newest patrons. So, big thank you to Georgios Zakaria, Tom Anderson, Dmitry Zlotarov, Alessandro, Georgi Petrov, Kaya Hellman, as well as Shannon and Jennifer. I'd also like to thank Yulia Smeya, Rosser Stevens, and Bonnie Fisher for making donations. So, As always, thank you all so much for your support. It makes doing this a lot easier. Now, I also want to thank listener Ellis Schumann for suggesting that I specifically mention the year at the beginning of each episode to kind of try to make it easier to follow along. I think I often try to allude to what happened previously, but he made a good point that being more specific about the time should help. Also, Just as a note, any of you who struggle a little bit with that or trying to remember when things are happening, the every single episode has a full kind of timeline of all the major events, including some I don't talk about, uh, connected with the kind of blog post for that episode, which is linked in the description of every episode. So if you just scroll down to the description, click on that link, you can see a description and just that nice big timeline. So it makes it a lot easier to follow along. Also, another quick note. Uh, I got some good feedback from listener Alexander Stankovsky. Uh, I've gotten good kind of feedback and info from him in the past. So I wanted to kind of share that. Now, Alexander pointed out that using the term Macedonian Slav, which I'd used a few times in the past, implied that the population wasn't Bulgarian. Now, I personally had felt that using that term was neutral. Again, basically was helping to differentiate between kind of Slavic speakers in, in Bulgaria and those in Macedonia. But I think Alexander made a good point, uh, writing that I haven't made that same distinction when it comes to Greeks. So when I talk about, I don't really talk about Greek Macedonians, I just talk about Greeks there. Uh, and so in this way, I was sort of implying that, you know, Greeks are just Greeks, but, you know, people in Macedonia who are Slavs are different than basically Slavs and Bulgarians. Uh, and that basically, he, I don't know, he made a good argument and persuaded me that it makes more sense to simply refer to Bulgarian Macedonians or Macedonian Bulgarians when talking about those same people in Macedonia, at least for this point. Now, later on, when the population of Macedonia kind of builds a, a more distinct identity, the way I will refer to those people will change to reflect that new kind of self-identity. But for now, I think Macedonian Bulgarians make sense as a good way to refer to that population. So I will try to refer to them as Macedonian Bulgarians and to refer to Macedonian Greeks uh, to kind of differentiate between them on an even playing field. So as always, if you have any of your own thoughts or something, just email me. Uh, If you have a good source you think I've maybe missed that has some good information, just get in touch. You know, I'm just one person basically doing this podcast. So inevitably there's something I miss or a perspective I don't think of or consider. So getting this kind of feedback from you all really helps me a lot. And, you know, it it makes me excited that it helps me improve the thing I'm making for you, improve the quality of this podcast. So thanks again to Alexander. 
And with all that out of the way, let's get into things. Now, last time, the first half of 1908 saw Bulgaria's first election in five years, bringing the Liberal Democratic Party, formerly of Petko Karavelov, to power, alongside a newly invigorated agrarian party under its passionate leader, Stambuliski, who was basically ready to tear down the whole system. Meanwhile, the Young Turk Revolution broke out in the Ottoman Empire, quickly forcing the Sultan to reinstate the Ottoman Constitution and to share power with the Committee of Union and Progress, aka the Young Turks, remember those are kind of interchangeable, which was a reform movement aimed at returning the Ottoman Empire to the at old ideology of Ottomanism, remember we talked about that a long time ago, in order to preserve its power. However, Another outcome of the Young Turk Revolution was that the Ottoman Empire was going to get a democratically elected parliament. And because Bulgaria was still technically a part of the empire, and plenty of Bulgarians outside the Principality of Bulgaria lived in the Ottoman Empire anyways, that meant there was a sudden impetus for many Bulgarians to organize and potentially form political parties ahead of those elections, which were scheduled for November and December of that year. So just to put us in time, the Young Turk Revolution was in July, and so the elections are set for, it's like they're staggered, there's a few st uh, stages to them, but November and December. So a fairly quick turnaround time of only about four months, which anyone who knows anything about politics and elections knows that means there is no time to lose. Indeed, while the Young Turk Revolution was still underway, former members of the MRO's right wing began to organize what they called Bulgarian constitutional clubs in Macedonian cities. You can think of this as something akin to members of the Irish Republican Army who went legal uh, and, and decided that the best way to achieve their goals was through a political party called Sinn Féin rather than through armed struggle. So I'd say this is a bit akin to that. You know, the MRO is seeing, the right wing is seeing that there's now an opportunity to achieve a lot of their goals through legal political means rather than through armed violence. And so they're kind of refocusing some of their attention towards that. Now, initially, these constitutional clubs popped up on their own, but in early September, they did hold their first Congress in Thessaloniki to decide on a political program. The 72 representatives, basically representing largely, largely like local elites, ultimately listed their aims as, quote, A, implement civil and political education of the Bulgarian people in the spirit of constitutional freedoms, local self-government in Macedonia and Odrina, and B, to preserve and develop the Bulgarian folk culture, end quote. So, in other words, local elites in this new political party that want to get some representation in the Ottoman parliament. Essentially, they want freedom, self-government, and cultural development for Bulgarians in Macedonia. That's pretty much it. But, but while the former right wing of the MRO was organizing into this new political force, the organization's former left wing was doing the same. Sindansky and his faction had, as we know, embraced the Young Turk Revolution, given up their weapons, and were now forming their own legitimate political party called the People's Federative Party. Though sometimes it's referred to as the People's Federative Party Bulgarian section because the original idea was that the party would contain individual sections representing all the nationalities within the Ottoman Empire, but no other sections ended up forming, so 
yeah basically the people's federative party and the bulgarian section it's just one thing now as this new party was forming in the aftermath of the young turk revolution sandansky and several other leaders of the left-wing faction signed an address to the people of macedonia which said in part quote today's moment is great in it the great question will be resolved will our people be free or not who will be the winner it depends solely on you on your will and willingness to die for freedom and will you citizens who have already tasted the sweet fruits of freedom hesitate to carry out your sentence and not bury criminal absolutism end quote so this gives you some idea of what this new left-wing former MRL Sandansky-led political party was aiming at and generally what Sandansky wanted to get out of the Young Turk Revolution. He wanted to, you know, in his own words, bury criminal absolutism, right? He wanted the Sultan gone. He wanted the Ottoman Empire to become a kind of free democratic state, which would give rights and representation to all the Ottoman Empire's various ethnic minorities in order to achieve, you know, kind of greater social prosperity and, and all these kinds of things. Now, I think it's interesting because, you know, he was aligning with the Young Turks in doing this. And the Young Turks also, from Ottomanism, wanted to kind of, in some way, give more rights to the ethnic minorities of the empire and to reduce the power of the sultan, if not get rid of the sultan. You know, they kind of compromised on that. But I think what's important is thinking about what the ultimate end goal was. You know, for Sandansky, the end goal is, again, this, you know, utopian kind of, you know, he even wants perhaps a kind of Balkan federal state or Ottoman state, something like that. Some kind of larger federal state with lots of nationalities who enjoy equal rights and freedoms and all these kinds of things for its own sake. The Young Turks want to, you know, achieve some of those aims, but with the goal of using those rights in order to make the Ottoman Empire strong again, right? To, to reinvigorate uh, the, the power and authority of the Ottoman Empire. So I think that's important to kind of keep in mind that, yes, Sandansky and the, the Committee of Union and Progress, i.e. the Young Turks, they agree on a lot of things and they are working together. But the end goals, you know, the reason they are each doing what they're doing is very different. So, you know, in general, around the region, leftist and agrarian political movements largely welcomed the Young Turk Revolution as a blow against absolute monarchy and for democracy. As I just said, right, they, they saw this as a way to achieve the aims that they had. But again, that was a bit naive because the real aim of the Young Turks was to strengthen and maintain the Ottoman Empire. Elections, more rights, all that stuff were only interesting to the Young Turks insofar as they furthered the aim of strengthening the empire. So, in other words, the Young Turks weren't likely to remain committed to democracy or greater rights if those things don't help them achieve their aims. So, the former left and right factions of the MRO are now both working at creating new political parties for the upcoming election. However, while the broad socialists under Sandansky were embracing the Young Turks, the narrow socialists, still operating on their own, remember they split a while back, a couple years ago, they condemned both former MRO factions. Now, this narrow socialist faction was joined by a few unions in July as they attempted to gain strength after their dismal performance in the last year's elections. So basically, you know, the, the usual, the, the socialists are fighting amongst themselves and denouncing each other. We've seen this a lot, but within a year or two, actually a couple groups will be expelled from the narrow socialists. Again, returning to that kind of tradition of infighting and socialism or and factionalism rather, but 
for the moment, the narrow socialists are still focused on fighting the broad socialists as well as just all the former MRO factions. And, well, their newspaper actually published an attack on that constitutional party of the MRO's former right wing that I thought was fairly interesting. The newspaper attack read like this, quote, The Bulgarian Macedonian Odrin Constitutional Party represents the interests of merchants and industrialists, of manufacturers and wealthy guilds, which tomorrow will transform into industrialists and large merchants, of entrepreneurs, wealthy peasant farmers, and usurers. In a word, of the class that is called to the civil and bourgeois class. As a party of that class, which is nationalist, which wants to unite with its brothers in Bulgaria, the Bulgarian Macedonian Odrin Constitutional Party is also nationalist and with all the aspirations and ideals of the Bulgarian bourgeoisie in Macedonia and Odrin. End quote. So this gives you again an idea of how the MRO's right wing was portrayed by the left. Uh, We've seen this, right, when with Marsha McDermott's kind of her biography in Sandansky, how she portrays it, you know, kind of looking at things through this Marxist lens, uh, everything is kind of class struggle, even when, again, in my personal opinion, I don't think class struggle is the best kind of framework with which to understand what was happening here. Uh, though I think the, the attack that that political party is kind of representing basically local elites, merchants and industrialists, wealthy people, yeah, it's kind of true. Those are at least the leaders of the party. I think that party does have quite a bit of support from everyday people, but the leaders of that party are without a doubt largely taken from the groups that are being kind of accused in that newspaper article. So again, we're seeing why, you know, there's this idea that the the kind of struggle for Macedonia is universal in Bulgaria, but it's still kind of opposed by a lot of these left-wing factions who see the aims of Bulgaria obtaining Macedonia as being tied to, you know, the the struggle, kind of a class struggle and not a national struggle. And so that's how they're kind of framing this and why a lot of those left-wing forces basically have no interest in participating in that struggle. But still, overall, the Young Turk Revolution was embraced by nearly everyone around Europe, with the exception of some nationalists in a few Balkan states, as well as Germany and Austria-Hungary, because, well, they'd both invested very heavily in courting the Ottoman Empire, which meant courting the people who were in charge of the Ottoman Empire before the revolution. So, understandably, they are quite unhappy to see the people they invested in building relationship with uh, lose power and influence. The public opinion in Bulgaria was generally favorable towards the Young Turk Revolution, but the government in Sofia and Prince Ferdinand were somewhat wary. The revolution and its reforms held the potential to stop the decay of the Ottoman state and thereby deprive Bulgaria of the chance to finally declare full independence and to possibly obtain Macedonia. So, yeah, they, they were, you know, interested in, you know, Bulgarians, ethnic Bulgarians in the Ottoman Empire getting more rights. That was nice. But still, they were not interested in the revitalization of the Ottoman Empire, which, again, was the purpose of giving those people those rights. Still, some others in the Bulgarian government saw that the aftermath of the Young Turk Revolution could actually be the kind of beginning of the final breakup of the Ottoman Empire, so they saw opportunities there. So for all these reasons, Sofia was quite hesitant to take any sides in the Young Turk Revolution, right? They, they, they didn't quite want the Young Turks to succeed, but also they, they weren't quite sure where all this was going. So, 
yeah, the Bulgarian government is on the sidelines for the moment. Bulgaria's represent- representative in Constantinople, Ivan Stefanov Geshov, who is different from the Ivan Geshov I've been talking about for a while. He is the cousin of that one. Now, Ivan Stefanov Geshov felt that Bulgaria should respond to the revolution by just declaring independence. He wrote, quote, The Young Turk Revolution is not something good for Bulgaria, because it is clear that the revolution pushed away from Bulgaria at a still greater distance the solution of the Macedonian question as we have understood it and as we have yearned for it. My conclusion is that in the final analysis, we, as a state, lose from the revolution because it has displaced the Macedonian question and our position in it has been significantly weakened. As we lose by the Young Turk coup, we are obliged to seek some revenge. At today's time, this cannot be other than the full independence of Bulgaria. End quote. So yeah, there you're seeing... Uh, you know, a Bulgarian diplomat put in his analysis and why he argues that the Young Turk Revolution is bad for Bulgaria and that Bulgaria should try to at least gain something out of it so it's not a complete loss. Now, in general, the new government in Constantinople was, we could say, a bit chaotic and unfocused in its foreign policy at this moment. The newly victorious revolutionaries had no firm allies in Europe, no set foreign policy, and so they sent a lot of messages to various uh, capitals of kind of proclaiming vague friendship and goodwill. Um, But it also had essentially made peace with uh, disarming the left wing of the MRO under Sendansky. I said they gave up their weapons, and so the new government was now praising Sendansky and leading some to speculate that an Ottoman-Bulgarian alliance might actually be in the works, But again, there was a lot of naivete in this. You know, the Ottomans had disarmed the Bulgarians in Macedonia, at least those affiliated with Sandansky, but had merely told the Greek armed groups to kind of hold off on attacks for the time being. So essentially, the Ottomans were just hedging their bets everywhere, trying to work out how the new regime was going to fit into the geopolitics of Europe and the Balkans while events moved rather quickly. But we can see in these actions that, you know, the Bulgarian armed groups in Macedonia and the Greek ones are not being treated the same way and that the Bulgarians have basically unilaterally disarmed while the Greeks have not. So, you know, that would be of some concern to people in that area because as we've seen, those Greek armed bands have a tremendous capacity for violence. Now, at the end of August, the first line of the first in a line dominoes fell. A grand gala was held in Constantinople to celebrate the Sultan's birthday. As usual, diplomats in the city were all invited. However, this time, Bulgaria's representative, Ivan Stefanov Geshov, uh, did not receive an invitation. Now, ostensibly the reason was that Bulgaria was an Ottoman vassal. It was not an independent state. And so a diplomat from Bulgaria would not enjoy equal status to those from independent states, which technically is true. Uh, But it seems that, like, this is a bit of a issue of communication and perhaps the new kind of diplomats coming up through the Young Turk Revolution were not as familiar with diplomacy and the fact that, yes, you might be doing something which is technically kind of correct, but that can still be a diplomatic mistake and cause you huge problems. So when this problem kind of arose, the Ottomans seemed eager to apologize and kind of mend relations, but the government in Sofia was furious and recalled Geshov, prompting the Ottomans to respond by recalling their representative in Sofia. Now, that said, 
This incident alone wasn't enough to justify Bulgaria declaring independence, but the government in Sofia was kind of moving in that direction and seeing the potential for an opening. Then, a few days later, the Railroad Workers' Union of the Oriental Railway Company began a massive strike which shut down the vital Oriental Railway between the Ottoman Empire and Europe. Now, the Ottomans attempted to send military officers to talk to the striking workers, but a lot of this railway ran through Bulgaria, and a lot of those striking workers were in Bulgaria, and the Bulgarian army refused to allow those Ottoman officers to cross their border to speak with the strikers. Instead, to ensure the railway lines continued to operate, the Oriental Railway Company requested the Bulgarian National Rail Company, BDG, to temporarily take over and operate those lines until the strike could be resolved. They did just that, but the key point here is that BDG had no intention of ever giving control of those lines back to the Oriental Railway Company. Essentially, Railroads owned by an Ottoman company had just been nationalized and taken over by the Bulgarian state. When the strike was over, the company demanded the lines be given back, but Bulgaria refused, although they did float the idea of maybe paying the Oriental Railway Company to buy them. But essentially, all this together, that diplomatic snub in Constantinople, the opportunity to take over the rail lines, and this the general breaking down of the powerful status quo in the Balkans, together meant that officials in Sofia finally felt the time was right to declare independence. That said, they still would have preferred to do so with the blessings of the Ottomans, so some secret discussions occurred while in which the Bulgarians raised the idea that if the Ottomans accepted their independence, Bulgaria might be willing to enter into an alliance with its former sovereign. But it seemed that the Ottomans agreed to this in principle, but were eager to prevent a kind of bad break in relations with Bulgaria. Again, you know, things in the Ottoman Empire were quite chaotic. They'd just gone through this revolution. The revolution was still not settled, right? The, the new status quo hadn't been established. And so the young Turks were very eager to prevent war or just any big event going on that might disrupt the fragile new kind of ecosystem they were creating. Meanwhile, many great powers were warning Sofia not to declare independence, particularly Great Britain. Russia, for its part, urged Sofia to postpone it until the next year when the details would be worked out kind of diplomatically. Now, rumors that Austria-Hungary was about to formally annex Bosnia and Herzegovina, which, if you'll remember, was still technically an Ottoman province, but which Austria-Hungary had controlled since 1878, but you know they kind of occupied it, but you know, again, technically still part of the Ottoman Empire, practically completely under Austro-Hungarian control. The Ottomans have no authority there. So, yeah, it seemed that Austria-Hungary was eager to use this kind of chaotic moment that Bulgaria wanted to use to declare independence in order to finally formally annex Bosnia and Herzegovina, which encouraged the Bulgarian government to go ahead because it meant that, well, the likelihood that the great powers could say, no, 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 Bulgaria, you can't do this because you're breaking the status quo and we all have to preserve the status quo, if Austria-Hungary was going to do this annexation, then Bulgaria could say, oh, look, a great power is also upsetting the status quo, so why can't we? By the end of September, the Bulgarian cabinet approved the Declaration of Independence. They only had to wait for Ferdinand to return from Hungary, where he had been spending some time. Basically, the Young Turk Revolution and all the subsequent events had taken everyone by surprise, and so Ferdinand hadn't even been in Bulgaria for any of this stuff. Now, by the final days of September, 
The Ottomans were deeply concerned that a Bulgarian declaration of independence might accompany a declaration of war, in which Bulgaria would just, you know, seize Macedonia. But while those fears were still active, Ferdinand boarded the Oriental Express and returned to Bulgaria, spending much of the trip locked in the train's bathroom for his own safety, ironically much as he had done when he first traveled to Bulgaria to become its new sovereign. Much like then, Ferdinand was racked with doubt over whether this was the right move. But, regardless of those doubts, on October the 5th, Ferdinand stood in the Church of the Forty Martyrs in Velikotornovo, a church which had been built by Tsar Ivanasen II back in 1230, and proclaimed an independent kingdom of Bulgaria with himself as its new Tsar. For the first time in 512 years, an independent Bulgarian state ruled by a Tsar had come into existence. Unsurprisingly, the great powers were furious. Tsar Nicholas of Russia in particular labeled Ferdinand a megalomaniac for daring to proclaim himself Tsar. Now, I suppose Nicholas quite enjoyed being the only man in the world with that title, though, as we know, the title of Tsar was used by Bulgarian rulers since Simeon in 926, while the first Russian Tsar was Ivan the Terrible, who began using the title more than six centuries later in 1547. So, you know, it's a bit rich that Russia is sort of claiming the, that this is their title, that no one else should be able to use it. But uh, I think anyone following uh, Russian history and Russia's history with Bulgaria should be very unsurprised by that fact. Now, all the great powers refused to recognize Bulgaria's independence and all encouraged Sofia to stop mobilizing to prevent war in the Balkans. The Ottomans protested, reminding Ferdinand that he had no right to make such a unilateral declaration. But the Ottomans were also very worried about war with Bulgaria, and so they entered into negotiations. Ultimately, though, both sides wanted to avoid a war at this moment, and so both sides began to gradually demobilize over the coming months. Still, in the process, the Ottomans proposed breaking away Eastern Rumelia and turning it into a buffer state. You know, they were still putting out these kinds of feelers and things and showing that still... Although, you know, Bulgaria had unified with Eastern Rumelia some years earlier, legally there were still some distinctions. They weren't, in all eyes, technically still fully unified, and so there was still some discussion of separating and breaking the two up. There was also talk of substantial financial payments. Essentially, the Ottomans wanted Bulgaria to pay its portion of the Ottoman national debt, as well as to pay for the railway they just took. This amounted to a massive sum Bulgaria really could not pay, and Bulgarian diplomats offered to pay a much smaller amount instead. The Ottomans ultimately proposed shifting the border so some Muslim villages would go to them instead of Bulgaria, but in the process, the Bulgarians now had an excuse to threaten war once again. All this is to say, by early 1809, negotiations were still ongoing. You know, the declaration had been in early October, it's now the next year, and there's still this kind of looming potential threat of war, and everyone's still trying to figure out how the Bulgarian Declaration of Independence is going to be accepted and what's going to come out of it. Now, during this time, the Ottomans also proposed alliances with all the other Balkan states to act as a kind of security guarantee in case of war against Bulgaria. Again, showing how concerned the Ottomans were for this for this occurrence. They were very worried about this kind of a war, and so they wanted to get the other Balkan states on their side. But that wasn't all that was going on. The very day after Bulgaria's declaration of independence, Austria-Hungary did it. They formally annexed Bosnia and Herzegovina. 
Essentially, the great powers, including Austria-Hungary, had been telling Ferdinand that he could not violate the Treaty of Berlin and the broader status quo in the Balkans under any circumstance, until the moment it became convenient for the great powers to do exactly that, in which case, eh, it was fine. So again, it's you know something you listener to the podcast should not be surprised at, that the, the great powers had a lot of double standards when it came to how they viewed Bulgaria and the other Balkan states vis-a-vis themselves. You know, the, the rules are for the little states, not for the big ones. Now, Russia had put forward and in kind of or put together an informal agreement with Austria-Hungary by which the Russians would be allowed to move warships through the Dardanelles Strait if Austria-Hungary was going to annex Bosnia and Herzegovina. So, you know, the other great powers were thinking, okay, if the status quo in the region is going to be broken, at least we should all get something out of it. However, the UK very strongly opposed this, and the Russian diplomat who orchestrated the whole deal soon realized that, well, he messed up. That he was under the impression that this was a done deal, that that he that the Austro-Hungarians agreed they were going to back Russia on this, they would finally be able to kind of access the Black Sea and move their warships between it. But once everything happened, the UK opposition came to light, and the Austro-Hungarians basically like we already got what we want. Why should we help you? So it fell through and it was, a you know, there was a, a huge embarrassment for the Russians. Now, Austria-Hungary had thought that its annexation of Bosnia and Herzegovina would weaken Serbia and help kind of combat its growing concerns about the millions of South Slavs that lived within the border of Austria-Hungary. So again, Austria-Hungary has a lot of South Slavs in it. A lot of them want independence. They're against the government. That's concerning for Vienna. And so they think, okay, if yes, true, annexing Bosnia and Herzegovina brings more South Slavs into our country, but it will also weaken Serbia. And by weakening Serbia, we're weakening one of the states that, you know, the South Slavs kind of can rally around. So they thought that would kind of balance out things. However, they were wrong and basically bringing these new South Slavs into the empire was making the problem worse. And we'll see in the in the coming years exactly how much worse and how this decision is going to play out. But uh, suffice to say, it uh, definitely will make the situation worse. Now, shortly after Austria-Hungary's move, Greeks in Crete declared union with Greece. Again, Crete was still technically part of the Ottoman Empire. Now, this is another case where uh, it was kind of a a de facto union. The island remained legally in Ottoman territory, uh, but kind of semi-independent. So it's been a bit like Bulgaria up to this point. But even the Greek state actually refused to recognize this. So, you know, Crete says, uh, you know, Bulgaria just declared independence. So we're going to take this moment to declare that we're part of Greece. And Greece is like, uh, maybe not. And the reason is that Bulgaria, or sorry, Crete, Greece did not want to hurt Ottoman relations. You know, as we know, Greece has been working with the Ottomans to kind of increase its influence in Macedonia. The Greeks lost a war against the Ottomans recently. So just Greece is in a very fragile state and they're in no position to kind of boldly claim this new territory that wants to be a part of them. So yeah, that's all kind of still frozen in time for the moment. Now, shortly after all this happens, Serbia and Montenegro signed a military alliance which generated more fears in the Ottoman government that those two countries might soon demand territorial compensation, considering, you know, in theory, all their neighbors were getting stuff. Austria-Hungary got Bosnia, Bulgaria got independence, Greece didn't really get anything, but in theory they could get Crete. And so 
you know, much like we saw in the 1880s, there was a possibility that Serbia says, hey, everyone else got something. I should get something. So this didn't actually materialize. You know, Serbia didn't feel in a strong enough position to demand anything. And instead, a secret convention was signed in which Serbia and the Ottoman Empire agreed to help protect each other's interests in the region, mostly directed against Bulgaria. So the Ottomans wanted open alliances to help kind of protect against a possible war with Bulgaria. They didn't get that. But instead, they do have this kind of secret informal agreement with Serbia that they'll back each other up to help defend against Bulgaria potentially going to war. Now, Serbia, somewhat understandably at this point, is very worried about now being sandwiched between Bulgaria and Austria-Hungary because we know Austria-Hungary and Serbia are not on the best terms right now and particularly those, you know, that relationship is going to get a lot worse now that Austria-Hungary annexed Bosnia and Herzegovina, which has a bunch of self-identified Serbs in it. So, yeah, Serbia is hedging its bets and trying to protect against being crushed in a potential kind of two-front conflict. So, by the end of 1908, things have calmed down a bit, and an agreement between Serbia and the Ottomans no longer felt so pressing because basically the risk of war with Bulgaria dissipated, and so that agreement kind of went nowhere, was sort of forgotten about. And this was part of the two growing power blocks in Europe, each jockeying for power and influence in the wake of all these sudden changes in the Balkans. The Triple Entente of Russia, France, and Great Britain wanted to check the growing power of Austro-Hungarian influence and potentially back a Balkan alliance against the Ottomans, while Germany and Austria-Hungary felt Austria had the right to annex the new territories and the remaining Balkan states should just accept it. But for now, Early 1909 sees this crisis ongoing, and I'll discuss its final stages in the next episode. In the meantime, let's wrap up with the other events of late 1908. For one, the Bulgarian government spent much of the time uh, after Sandansky decided to kind of back the Young Turks, trying to discredit him. But despite this, he was still busy organizing the left wing of the Macedonian movement into this new People's Federal Party above, ahead of the new Ottoman elections. However, the day a general congress was held, a sympathizer of Boris Sarafov shot him, that is Sandansky, with a pistol in an inn. Lucky for Sandansky, the bullet went right through him and he survived, though he did have to spend a few weeks recovering in a hospital. But while he survived, the attempted assassination did result in the congress devolving into a total mess without Sandansky there to lead it, helping further to prevent his new political party from performing well in the upcoming elections. Now, when the Ottoman elections were finally held, voting was limited to only property-owning men and was done in two stages, with the first being people voting for electors, and then those electors would elect the actual delegates. It's kind of something like the U.S. Electoral College, just, you know, a step removed from actual direct democracy. Um, but the result was four Bulgarians out of 288 deputies were elected, making Bulgarians, unsurprisingly, a fairly insignificant electoral force. Two of those four were representing the constitutional clubs of the MRO's former right wing, and two came from Sandansky's left wing, meaning that even those four Bulgarians were representing two opposing camps. Now, otherwise, late 1908 saw a few firsts. The first Bulgarian Orthodox Church in the United States opened in a suburb of St. Louis, and basically southwestern Illinois will quickly become a center of the Bulgarian community in the U.S., as actually a year before, the region got the country's first Bulgarian language daily newspaper. So, yeah, 
a vibrant Bulgarian community is rising in southwestern Illinois. In Sofia, Bulgaria got its very first movie theater, built by an Italian industrialist who owned some tobacco factories in Plovdiv. Now, this was one of the first movie theaters in Europe. One source said it was actually the second movie theater to open in Europe, but I couldn't find any other sources to confirm that. Now, oddly enough, I walk by it all the time, and the facade was recently renovated, though I don't know what the future of the building is, but it's a lovely building on Maria Luisa Boulevard in Sofia, and it's still there. Finally, a textile workers' strike led the owners of textile factories to form a cartel and collectively work to break a strike. So, another example of labor agitation, but this time the factory owners definitely come out on top. And that wraps up 1908. The former left and right wings of the MRO had both transitioned to political parties, with the left faction even disarming, though without much success in the elections to show for it. But the big news is that a diplomatic incident and a railway strike paved the way for Bulgaria to finally declare full independence from the Ottoman Empire. So the Bulgarian principality is gone, replaced with the Bulgarian Kingdom, or the Tsardom of Bulgaria. But this, along with the Austro-Hungarian annexation, Bosnia and Herzegovina has brought Europe to the brink of war. For now, though, negotiations are ongoing as we enter 1909, and it remains to be seen what all these events will bring. And that is what we'll cover next time. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by the talented Teddy Raven. As always, you can check out more information at bghistorypodcast.com, and I'll see you all in the next one.